0: Good to see you. I get to preach on preaching. But first, I'd uh, like to introduce a special guest, at least special to me. My wonderful wife of 42 years is sitting right over here. Carol. Carol. She's been an encouragement to me in my ministry, as I pray I've been an encouragement to her in her ministry. She's the director of women's ministries at College Heights uh, here in town. She's probably busier than I am most days, Uh, but uh, she has heard me over the last four-plus decades preach literally thousands of messages, and uh, she's always found a way to be encouraging after each message. If, If you know anything about preachers, after Sunday, morning they hop in the car go home with their wife there's always a question that every preacher asked his wife on the way home and the question is how the sermon go today and uh, over over all the sermons she's heard she's heard me at my best and she's heard me when I wasn't quite at my best she always has found a, a, a way to be encouraging I remember one Sunday in Norfolk Nebraska our last uh, full-time ministry before we came here I was not at my worst, or not at my best. I had preached. It probably wasn't the worst sermon in the history of Christianity, but it made the top ten list of the worst sermons in the history of Christianity. In fact, I was, you know, halfway through the second point, I was going, please God, help me find a way to move right into the invitation hymn. This is not going the way I'd planned. And so, you know, the service ended. We, uh, we smiled at people after the service, got in the car, It's pretty quiet all the way home (laughs) i finally couldn't stand it anymore i i I asked well honey how'd it go this morning she paused and thought a little bit she said well it ended (laughs) and that was about the most encouraging thing she could probably probably say hey ozark christian college exists To equip men and women to preach and teach the unsearchable riches of Christ. There is a tremendous need in the world today, the Christian world, I believe, to reestablish boldness in the proclamation of Christ. There's no task in the world like preaching the gospel. Listen to John Wycliffe. The highest service that men may attain to on earth is to preach the word of God. Listen to Cotton Mather. The great design and the intention of the office of a Christian preacher is to restore the throne and the dominion of God in the souls of men. Listen to Martin Luther. Why would any man stoop to be a king? When he could preach the good news of Jesus Christ. And I'm appreciative of all the disciplines we teach here on this campus. I'm appreciative of the New Testament department, the Old Testament department. I even kind of sometimes appreciate philosophy. Uh, (laughs) Every once in a while, I appreciate the Christian ed, the worship. But of all the departments on campus, Mark Scott's in the best one. (laughs) Preaching. And that's not just me. You know, God only had one son, and he made him a preacher. Preaching is where the mind of God is made real in the world of men. And what is preaching? It is when a handful of dust rises up to speak on behalf of the creator of the universe. Now, unfortunately, in our day and age... <laughs> Preaching has been belittled inside and outside the church. The only time you'll ever hear of preaching in popular culture is when somebody is making a joke about it or the church on Jimmy Kimmel or Conan O'Brien or some other late night television program. Most comments in the church today have more to do with the length of preaching Than the content of preaching. You know, I suspect in every interview I ever did while I was interviewing to be the preaching minister of local congregation, they didn't ask some of the most important questions they should have asked. Very seldom was I ever asked, do you really believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God? They never did ask, do you believe the Bible's the Word of God? But in every one of those interviews, I was asked this question. How long are your sermons most of the time? You know, it's kind of like the uh, old country preacher that was preaching to a small congregation. He was going on and on in the middle of the sermon. <laughs> old Fred got up and just started making his way out. Man, well, it was this you know, small family type congregation. The preacher stopped his sermon and said, Fred, Fred, where are you going? I'm not done. Fred said, I'm going to go get a haircut, preacher. <laughs> the preacher said, well, why didn't you do that before the service started? He said, I didn't need one before the service started. <laughs> Now, my friends, when the people in our pews, when the people in our pews are more concerned with beating the Methodists to the restaurants than they are about the deep things of God, we shouldn't wonder what's wrong with our people. We should wonder what's wrong with our preaching. The pulpit, or pardon me, the pew will seldom ever rise higher than the pulpit. And there's no more pressing issue before the church today than the need for bold preaching that does nothing less than exalt christ bold preaching that lifts christ up so clearly and so powerfully that he will draw all men to himself through that preaching now the question is where do we go to find this sort of power in our preaching and our teaching good question Number of years ago, when we were ministering up in Nebraska, it was uh, my wife and I's pleasure to become friends with uh, Dr. Calvin Miller, preacher, educator, author. Wrote the singer song and the finale. Uh, went on to be preaching professor late in his life. In his little book, Spirit, Word, and Story, he talks about power and preaching. I love what he says. He writes, Power is the preacher's nemesis. The stuff of prophets that we mortals handle with fear. Preachers preach. But prophets thunder. <laughs> and Dr. Miller goes on and he says, This book is obviously for preachers, since prophets don't buy books on preaching. <laughs> they're, not, they're not interested in homiletical how-tos, nor do they care about style and preparation. Prophets don't prepare messages. Prophets are messages. Preachers are often only interested in oratorical power to enhance and ornament and drive home their sermons. Prophets major in things like obedience, integrity, and the demands of God. Having power is not their goal. It's only the supernatural corollary of their preachment. Prophets have power. They don't go looking for it. Preachers, he writes, though, on the other hand, it seems, search for it, but seldom have it. I believe the Apostle Paul was a prophetic preacher. He wasn't concerned. Sorry, Mark, but he wasn't concerned, I don't think, with homiletical textbooks, sermon illustration guides of the latest edition of Preaching Magazine over in the library. The Apostle Paul, by his own admission, knew only one thing. He knew Christ. He knew Christ crucified. Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. And that is why Paul was such a powerful tool in the Master's hand. And so in our discussion of preaching today, I want to turn our attention to the end of uh, one of Paul's small little letters, the epistle to the Colossians. If you've got your Bibles, we're in Colossians, the fourth chapter, three simple little verses, Colossians 4, 2, 3, and 4. Colossians is a powerful book, and in it, Paul pours out his heart in defense of the gospel, and uh, this morning... As he nears the conclusion of the epistle, I think he outlines for us three keys that will help unlock the, the power that will allow for bold proclamation to be done in our preaching and in our teaching. If you've got your Bibles... Colossians, the fourth chapter, verses 2, 3, and 4. Paul says, Devote yourselves to prayer. Be watchful and thankful and pray for us too that God may open a door for our message so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ for which I am in chains. Pray that I may proclaim it clearly as I should. Key number one. Bold proclamation begins and is born with the truth. In our text, Paul's nearing the end of the Colossian epistle, and he prays that God would open the door of opportunity so that he could proclaim the mystery of Christ. Did you hear what he said in verse three? Pray for us so that God may open a door for our message so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ. Now I know a lot of people say, yeah, every time I hear my preacher preach, he's preaching the mystery of Christ because when the sermon's done, it's a mystery to me what he had to say. But that's not. What Paul means... The word musterion there in the Greek is, is something when Paul uses it it means something that was once hidden in long ages past but now is clearly revealed in the gospel. In Caesar's Gallic Wars Caesar uses the term when he brings his generals into the tent and he lays out the battle strategy for all of them to know and realize the text says Caesar laid out for them the musterion of the battle. And so in our preaching We unveil, we unpack the mystery of God. In fact, Paul uses that term, mystery, 17 times in his epistles, referring to the truth. And this was the truth, the message and the work of the person of God himself in his son, Jesus Christ. And he's adamant about that here in Colossians. In fact, if you read through the first three chapters of of Colossians, and we're not going to do that. It'd take a really long time to read through the first three chapters. And the sermon's going to be long enough as it is. So we're not going to read the first three chapters and all of God's people said. But we're going to refer to the first three chapters. If you do that... You'd find over and over again, Paul holds up Christ as the solution to some of the problems facing this young congregation. Uh, just take a look up on the screen I, I've, I've outlined them Paul says Christ is the image of the invisible God Christ is the firstborn over all of creation in all things were created by Christ and for Christ and Christ is the head of the church and Christ is the, has the supremacy in everything Christ reconciles us to God in his body on the cross Christ is in us the hope of glory Christ holds all the hidden treasures of wisdom and knowledge in Christ all the Fullness of deity lives in bodily form. We're given fullness of Christ. We're buried and raised with Christ in baptism. We're forgiven in Christ of our sins. We died with Christ to the basic principles of the world. We're raised with Christ to set our hearts on things above. Christ is our life. Christ is our all. Christ is our peace. The word of Christ dwells in us richly. And whatever we do in word or deed, we're to do in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Kind of gives you the impression that he's trying to make a point, don't you think? And that is that the solution to all of the problems that are being faced by this young congregation are going to be resolved in Christ. So apparently if you take a New Testament class, Ragsdale will teach you this and Colossians or whoever teaches Colossians that that the church at Colossae was facing a false teaching. We're a little fuzzy on exactly what the nature of the false teaching was. Scholars call it the Colossian heresy. But we really don't know much about it. It might have been an early form of Gnosticism, might have been Docetism, might have been Communism or Mormonism for all I know. So Paul just doesn't, Paul doesn't talk about the details of what the heresy Pharisee is he talks about the details of what the solution is, and the solution is Jesus. Now, what's this have to do with bold proclamation? Well, if anything will rob me of my boldness in the pulpit, sometimes it's that irresolvable problem out in the congregation. How many of us have struggled with a difficulty at a church, or maybe in our our families, and we agonize over it, and we, we lay awake at night, staring at the ceiling of the bedroom, trying to figure out how we're going to put all the pieces back together again. And the problem, though, is so complex and it's so deep-seated and far-reaching that it defies our analysis and it saps us of our strength and it robs us of our boldness and it blinds us sometimes to God's greater vision well my friends Paul didn't tell the faithful at Colossae how to unravel every strand of the Colossian heresy they didn't even need to understand all the intricacies of the problem what they really needed was to grasp the solution And the solution is Jesus Christ. So often today we're told that you have to get a hold of the problem. You just have to get a hold of that problem. No, you have to get a hold of Christ. He is the solution. There'll never be boldness in our preaching until we become convinced that Jesus really is the solution to our every need. But when people come to grips with that, Amazing things happen. One of my favorite preaching stories is in John Stott's book, uh, Between Two Worlds, his book on preaching. Uh, some of you have read this story. He tells the story of a, an English preacher, William Haslam, who was ordained into the ministry of the Church of England in 1842. And he served the parish at North Cornwall. He worked hard in his charge, but Stott writes, His labor was basically ineffective... Because he, as the preacher, had never ultimately grasped the truth of the gospel. In that day and age, if you could become the preacher of a community, you instantly became one of the high-ranking members of that community. And here was Haslam preaching in the church at North Cornwall, and he had never personally grasped the faith of Jesus. Do you know any preachers like that? Nine years after his ordination, in 1851, he was preaching on the liturgical text of the day. And here's what the text was. What think ye of Christ? Whose son is he? And I want to read you John Stott's description of what occurred that Sunday morning. While he was preaching... The Holy Spirit, no doubt in answer to many prayers, opened the eyes, His eyes, the preacher's eyes to see Christ of whom He was speaking and opened His heart to believe in Jesus. And the change that came over the preacher was so obvious that a local preacher who happened to be visiting that day jumped up in the middle of the service and started shouting, the preacher is converted. And he was drowned out by the voices of three or four hundred of the congregation. And, in order to uh, to uh, give some some organization to that, Haslam himself calmed everybody down and he sang out the doxology, and everyone joined him, and they sang it over and over again and News spread in that region of England that the preacher had been converted in his own pulpit by his own sermon. And revival broke out that day and lasted, Stott writes, lasted for nearly three years with a vivid sense in every one of God's presence with conversions to Christ taking place, not just on a weekly basis, but on a daily basis. My friends, there'll never be boldness in our preaching or our teaching until we are laid hold of by the fact that our message is the truth and it even goes beyond that it is when we are laid hold of by that truth that jesus christ really is the solution to every problem that we will ever face bold proclamations born with the truth key number two bold proclamation is empowered by prayer (laughs) you know preachers And uh, I'm guilty of this as as much as the next guy. Sometimes talk more about prayer and yet practice it less than almost any other aspect of the Christian life. And if there's one thing that jumps out at us from our text is when Paul's asking and talking about proclamation, prayer is at the front and the back and the middle of everything he's seeking. He's asking that the congregation would, would beseech God that he would be empowered to make faithful proclamation. Take a look at verses 2 through 4 of our text. He says, devote yourselves to prayer. Be watchful and thankful. Pray for us too that God may open the door for our message that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ. Pray that I might proclaim it clearly as I should. You see it right there in the text. Pray. Pray, pray three times. We know, those of us that have preached a long time, we know that the secret to power in our preaching comes from being in direct communication with God, reading the Word and speaking to God in prayer. And we need to develop, gang, one-track minds on that subject. One-track minds. I I have a favorite story about... Four little ladies in the nursing home, all nice widow ladies, out in the foyer playing cards every afternoon as they always did. And one afternoon, as they were playing cards, in through the door walks this tall, gray-haired gentleman, handsome in the extreme, (laughs) with a suitcase in his hand. And all four of the little widow ladies in unison laid their cards down on the table first little lady says hello there <laughs> new here aren't you <laughs> and he goes yes uh, i am i'm uh, coming to stay here this is going to be my new home i need a little help in taking care of things and uh, here here's my home all by myself second little lady says uh, well where'd you come from and the nicely groomed gray-haired man said sighed and he said you know I said I wasn't going to lie about this. I'm, I'm going to tell the truth. And so uh, I'm going to tell the truth. I, I've spent the last 20 years in San Quentin prison. And I'm out now and I need a little help and this is going to be my home. Third little widow lady goes, oh my, San Quentin, why, why were you there? The fellow sighed and said, well, I can't lie. I spent the last 20 years in San Quentin prison because I murdered my wife. And the the first little widow lady said, Oh, then you are single! Now, that is a one-track mind. That is a one-track mind. And I think we need to develop that mindset when it comes to preaching and teaching. We can do all our academic work. We can make, we can be like Matt Proctor and make every point in the sermon, begin with the same letter and end with the same letter and everything in between. But unless we've been in communication with God, beseeching that God would empower our message, nothing is going to happen of eternal consequence. One of the greatest prayers in the Bible, I think, is found in the fourth chapter of the book of Acts. In my Acts class, we just got through studying it a few weeks ago. You remember the story? Peter and John are arrested in the temple while preaching, and they are taken off and stood before the Jewish High Council, the very high council that had executed Jesus just a few weeks before. And they are, they are warned not to preach in Jesus' name anymore. They are threatened. Now, I don't know what that means in your mind, but These are the guys that paid false witnesses to lie about Jesus. And they had Jesus executed. And they threatened Peter and John. And and Peter and John were released. They went back to the church that was meeting in Jerusalem. And in Acts 4, it says that they, they joined together in prayer with the church. But they didn't pray what we would normally pray for. Normally we would pray, Lord, please take note of all of these threats and please don't let any of these horrible things happen to us that, that these high council said were going to happen. No, we want life to be easy while we're telling people about Jesus. Make life easy and good and sweet and kind and wonderful and none of these bad things happen. That's what we would pray. You know how I know that? Because I've sat in church for the last 60 years and I've listened to people pray. And we always pray for life to get easy and the bad things to go away. If you read that prayer in the fourth chapter of Acts, you'll notice that the church doesn't pray for the bad things to go away. They first praise God as the absolute ruler of the universe. They praise God for being the Lord of Revelation. They praise God for being the Lord creator of the universe. They praise Him for being the God of current history. And then they conclude the prayer by saying, and now Lord, consider their threats, and here's what they pray for, and grant that thy servants may speak thy word with boldness, while you extend your hand to perform signs and wonders through the wonderful name of Jesus. And my, my text says that when, when God heard that prayer, The place that they were in was shaken and God answered their prayer. The entire church went out, let come what may, persecution, bring it on. We are going in good times and in bad times to preach your word with boldness. Gang, that is a prayer that God will always answer. Do you hear me? That is a prayer that God will always answer. Bold proclamation is born in the truth. It is to be bathed in prayer. And when this occurs, the last key will naturally fall into place. And that is bold proclamation will come alive in the life of the preacher. You see, the very heart of bold proclamation lies in the preacher coming alive with the message of Christ. In our text, the Apostle Paul asked the Colossians, Pray so that I might proclaim Christ clearly as I should. Now that word proclaim clearly in the Greek is a very common Greek word. It means to make visible that which is invisible. Do you hear that? To make visible that which is invisible. And when we preach, gang, what are we doing? We're not simply telling people information about Jesus. When we preach, we don't present information, we present Christ. But it even goes deeper than that. We make visible Him who is invisible. In preaching, Christ comes to the forefront and the preacher fades into the background. In true preaching, Christ presents himself in the vehicle of human personality. How many of you have been like me? I can remember when I was a young lad in uh, in my freshman year of college, went to a revival meeting one evening. Uh, I don't even remember the name of the preacher preaching that evening. He wasn't anybody elaborate or magnificent, but he was preaching Christ and in the middle of the preaching, all of a sudden I wasn't sitting in the little New Point Christian Church in northern Missouri at this revival meeting listening to preaching. I was in the throne room of God. And God was speaking directly to my heart. That's what happens when Real preaching is taking place. Paul's adamant about this, consistent about it, all through his epistles. He says, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. He says in 2 Corinthians, we are therefore Christ's ambassadors. Make a good sports team name, wouldn't it? We're therefore Christ's ambassadors. As though God were, listen, as though God were making His appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf. Be reconciled to God. And here in Colossians, Paul has already said that one of the great truths of Christian faith is Christ in you, the hope of glory. James S. Stewart has written, is preaching the art of making a sermon and delivering that? Oh no, that's not preaching. Preaching is the art of making a preacher and delivering that. It's no trouble to preach, but it's a vast trouble to construct a preacher. And don't we here at Ozark Christian College know the truth of that? The great need for our world today is for preachers who have truly been converted to Christ over 300 years ago Richard Baxter wrote these words to preachers I believe we still need them today he says it's only too common that we expect our people to repent when we have not done so ourselves what efforts we will make to see that they are humbled? how hard we may press them with our teaching our convictions our emphasis to wring out of them a few penitent tears and yet our own eyes remain dry And our own hearts are so little affected by remorse. If we would only spend half as much time to affect and amend our own hearts as we do uh, the hearts of those in our congregations, how different our lives would be. The long and the short of it is this. Bold preaching That truly exalts Christ can only come from the life of a man or a woman who's completely sold out to Christ. Nothing is as powerful as the message of salvation communicated through the life of a truly redeemed man. Oh God, send us such men. Oh God, make us such men. And if you're looking for an example of bold preaching... That exalts Christ. <laughs> Christian history is replete with hundreds of examples. You'd have a hard time finding a better model than the preaching of the da- uh, late David Martin Lloyd-Jones at Westminster Chapel in London. Well, I was a student at uh, Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. Uh, I had uh, D.A. Carson. Don Carson was uh, one of my New Testament professors. And he knew Dr. Lloyd-Jones personally. Dr. Jones passed away in 1981. And uh, he told us a story about uh, the doctor. That's what uh, his close friends referred to him as, the doctor. Uh, he said at the end of Lloyd-Jones' ministry career, he contracted a slow, very painful, incurable form of cancer. He preached as long as he could, but finally he was, he was uh, relegated to being, uh, being in his home, and finally, in the last few uh, months, he was bedfast. His associate minister, Ian Ramsey, would come and visit the doctor every day. And on one occasion, he brought a bushel basket filled with filled with letters that had come in from people around the world. And uh, when he brought the basket into uh, the bed chamber of uh, the doctor, uh, the doctor said, "What's this?" And Ian Ramsay said, well, we get, we get hundreds of letters every day. These are just some of them that I brought you to encourage you. These are people from around the world that have been, been influenced by your preaching, by your ministry and writing. And Lloyd Jones says, well, what are they, what are they saying? What are they saying in the letters? And he says, well, all the people know that you have this, this, awful form of cancer This very painful and, and they're praying that, that you will be spared some of the agony and pain that normally is associated with, with this cancer. And Ian Ramsay said, Lloyd-Jones propped himself up on his elbow with all the strength he had left and he shouted at his associate minister, tell them to stop! Tell them to stop! If that's what they're praying for, tell them to stop. He plopped back down into bed. And what uh, Carson told us, he said next, uh, I'll never forget. Lloyd-Jones said, all of my life, all of my life, I've preached about the sufficiency of Christ to sustain a man or a woman in anything that life might send their way. And now here at the end of my life, God is granting me the privilege of proving that what I have preached all these years is true. I don't want to be spared anything. And according to Dr. Carson, he wasn't. He died a slow, lingering, painful death. But until the time that he slipped from consciousness... He did not cease to proclaim the sufficiency of Christ. My friends, here is the great need for our churches. Here is the great need for our lives. The fire of Christ ablaze in our hearts. That's what the world has to see. And when the truth of the sufficiency of Christ grips our hearts and the power of the Holy Spirit is unleashed in our lives through fervent communion with God in prayer, then the Lord Himself will come alive in our lives and the people will know the preacher is converted. The preachers are converted. And then and only then will we exalt Christ in bold proclamation. You're dismissed.